what the thing we were shooting for or have been attempting to do was to release two albums in one year. Um, kind of like, like the old timers used to do. Which, uh, which old timers are you thinking of? Frank Sinatra. Mm. Like he used to put out a couple albums a year. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say old timers, you're talking like, like forties, fifties, we're, we're going back here. Yeah. Just like, just cranking them out. And so that's what we were shooting for, but it looks like we're going to have to delay the release of this album by a couple months. So I don't even know. I don't know if that's official. This was, th- this was a conversation that I had with Ken from the label, uh, even last night because he got word from the, the record pressing plant that they're not going to have the vinyl until late March. So the release date was for the album was like mid December. And we were thinking, you know, if the, if the vinyl is a little bit late, that's okay. You know, if it's, if you have to wait a month for it, people can kind of just pre-order the vinyl or whatever, but it's looking more like people would have to wait like four months for the vinyl. So we're, we're, we're talking about, just postponing the release of the actual album. You feel obligated to push everything back because of the vinyl? This is something that we're trying to figure out. I mean, Ken was saying you know, he's, he's never been in this situation before where there've been these kind of delays in vinyl production. And so do you, do you just kind of move forward, release it digitally, release it on CD, and then consider that an album release? And when the vinyl happens, it happens? Or do you kind of wait and do it all at once because you know if if we release the album in december then the vinyl isn't really going to be part of the the kind of promo push that we're doing it'll be like a separate entity and people might not really know that the vinyl is there but the thing is um at this point you know our our press agent has already started the promo cycle for the album. So, you know, here I am doing interviews for an album that's supposed to come out in December. And you're really the first interview that I've done in the cycle so far. So I don't know if, if in the next couple of days, even this is, this is going to change. If we are, you know, officially pushing the release date back, if the other interviews are going to be rescheduled or what. So it's a little confusing right now. It's a strange situation that I'm sure a lot of bands are in because the vinyl delays are like ridiculous. And, and I don't know if this is sort of two nuts and bolts for people. I, I find it super interesting because I, I would assume that, I mean, a press pushes were already changing before the pandemic. And now that, you know, bands just aren't really on tour anymore. Obviously everybody's had to kind of rethink that cycle regardless. I wonder, you know, ultimately I guess how much of the interacting that people do with the the album is is through vinyl. I mean, it's it's probably still a majority streaming for you at this point. Uh, there's a lot of streaming, and actually, uh, CD sales are surprisingly strong. Like I think we for the for the last album, Hideout Sessions we sold more CDs than we did vinyl. So people are still buying them. Although, you know, that I found that surprising because I don't own a CD player anymore. 
<laughs> you know, I do it all vinyl or streaming. Is that an anomaly? I mean, you, you do sound a bit surprised by that stat. Yes. Like when, you know, when we released uh, Destination Failure, like it never came out on vinyl. We, we, uh, we asked the label to do vinyl for one of the singles we did. There's a 10-inch there's a vinyl single of uh, I Know You Love. But the album itself only came out on CD. I know that uh, Born to Quit came out on cassette. But back then, yeah, everybody was doing CDs. And then I think eventually, not only did vinyl kind of come back, but also people became a little disillusioned with CDs um, because like they're they're not quite as permanent as you would hope. I mean, the, the as a format, they kind of degrade more than we originally thought that they did. And also, just there's a kind of sterility um, to the the sound of it compared to vinyl but you know i'm saying this as a as a vinyl lover obviously you know i have my preferences (laughs) and that is to hear the the warmth and the and the the, all the cracks and pops of uh of listening to a record i suspect that you probably wouldn't be super dissimilar from one of your average fans though you know i assume that people who follow your career and follow the smoking Pope's career are people who are pretty deeply into music. I mean, it's not something that you kind of casually interact with these days, right? It's, it's something that you, to a certain extent, you have to seek out. Yes, you do. I don't know, man. I mean, like if we're, I, I don't, you know, when, when Ken and I were talking about whether to push the, the release date back, I don't think we landed on anything specific. I think we were leaning towards doing that, but, um, like he was telling me, he's like, we've never been in this situation before. And it's, it's not just, I mean, it's, it's a unique time for a lot of reasons. One of those being the, the sort of bizarre factors that, that contribute to the delay in vinyl production, you know, the things having to do with the supply chain and like the way that the, the pandemic played into it so that everything was shut down and now it's roaring back and major labels, you know, taking up a lot of the pressing plants everywhere with their, you know, albums that they're going to be selling at target and stuff. So there's that, but then there's also these questions about, just like you're asking, like how important is vinyl since we have a variety of formats that people are listening to music. Like to me, it seems like, man, if we don't have the vinyl, you know, we can't do this, but like maybe to the average person, that's a much smaller deal. Well, you don't have vinyl yet. Okay. I'll get it on CD or I'll just, I'll just pay for the download. I don't know. It's hard to know how to, how to gauge it. What was the initial impulse to, to do two albums? I mean, as you were alluding to before, like you said, in, in the old days, was it really just to kind of have a project to work on during all of this? Well, I think the, the kind of push, the impulse to, to do a second album right away had to do with the theme of the hideout sessions album being something that was done under a specific set of circumstances where it was recorded at a, at an empty club. And so it's basically a live performance that was done as a virtual concert. So it's like kind of a halfway live album, but you know, once we did one of those, I was aware that, um, once things opened up again, that would 
shift. Like there was almost like the fact that, that clubs were shut down for the pandemic. It was a, it was a unique window of time where this kind of a project would make sense. You know, it's almost like I, I wanted to hurry up and get in another one of these kind of albums before we got back to normal shows with people in them. Like, I, you know, I suppose I could still do these at an empty club and record stuff there. But like, it's, I, I wanted it to be performances that were authentically born out of uh, the necessity of having to do virtual shows because you couldn't have people gather. And also, uh, I, it, it, this was made possible by the fact that I wasn't writing a bunch of new material for these albums, you know. We were just arranging songs, like a lot of older songs, and also kind of re, reworking songs that I had already written. And uh, when, we, when we first did the, the, the first one, the Hideout Sessions one, there was something like... Uh, 40 some days between the time that we did our first rehearsal and the time where we played the, sh the show that actually got captured for the performance. So that's such an incredibly short period of time. And if I was writing uh, an album, you know, it would take, it would take months to, to develop the material. And here we were able to develop an album's worth of material in like, uh, you know, like a month and a half. And I, I just realized that, is probably why Frank Sinatra could put out multiple albums in one year because he wasn't writing all the songs. You know, if you have, if you have the material there, you just have to get together with your band and uh, work out an arrangement for existing material, which is, it's an artistically satisfying thing to do, but it's also just much quicker than the writing process. So I thought, you know, we could do it. The Hideout Sessions was recorded in, in October of 2020. And then, the space sessions was recorded in what uh, was it May or was it March? It was March. It was one of the M months. Uh, it was like March. So, so it's only like a few months later. Really. For yourself and for the fans, you get this document of the time, right? You know, you get this, this, this work of art that was like not only very much born out of the circumstances around it, but in some sense, a, a reflection of those circumstances. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy that things are opening up again and that we get to play real shows in front of live audiences that, you know, to, to come back to that after so long was such a, a, a life giving thing. The first show back that we played in front of an actual audience, like, uh, I almost lost it. I, I seriously, for the whole first half of the show, I was like choking back tears. I was so overwhelmed at the experience and I didn't realize how much uh, I had missed it or that I had sort of needed to be playing in front of audiences. And so that's great. I'm happy that that's happening, but I also am glad that we were able to document with two, with two full length albums, this kind of unique uh, period of restriction where the, you could only you could only play virtual shows. It's interesting to hear you describe it that way. I had listened to a recent interview that you did and you talked about playing together with the bands after, you know, I guess an extended hiatus and you described it similarly. You didn't know quite how much you missed it until you were really on stage playing those songs again with those, those people again. Is it just sort of the realities of like of, of daily life or our ability to, to compartmentalize? Is it, was it just, was it not something that really occupied your thoughts much in the interim? 
I think it was just, uh, yeah, the, the interim was filled with kind of, uh, dealing with the situation that was in front of you and sort of playing the hand you were dealt. And we were all just kind of trying to get through. I didn't have a lot of bandwidth for specifically thinking about sort of the role that live musical performance played in my life. But there was, there was obviously something, you know, to, to come back. I remember that, that first show that I, there was, I was, it was hitting me on a couple levels one was that there was something powerful collectively going on in the room about the fact that all of us uh on stage and in the audience had all been being deprived of this kind of communal uh exchange of energy that was that has been meaningful to us and it was sort of a reminder that you know perhaps we had been taking that for granted before but now this is something that we are are cherishing but then from my uh specific vantage point it sort of was was striking to me that being in the position of 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 performing music in front of an audience is apparently some essential part of my of my makeup as a person where if that's not happening uh i feel somehow incomplete which is something that almost was unsettling to me because you don't you don't like to think that you're particularly dependent on anything it's really easy to take things for granted particularly when you've been doing this for as long as you have i mean you know you've been playing in rock bands for a long time you started when you were, were fairly young you know how many people do you know in your life outside of people who play in bands who have been doing something since they were a teenager or, or in their early 20s it becomes easy to lose sight of that when you've been doing it for so long and when it's your daily reality and when like honestly probably more days than not it's kind of a pain in the ass it is it can be but it's it's more than worth it to be able to have the kind of transcendent experience of of participating in a performance even the even the performances that aren't as great as other performances are still they still have a transcendent quality to them but i think that's that's kind of for me that's because playing music in front of people is one of the only times where i'm fully present in the moment you know i'm almost and i I assume that this must be universal for a lot of people. Most activities in your life, your mind isn't fully engaged 100% in the activity that you're doing at the time. You're kind of like always able to kind of think about something else at the same time. But playing a show is something where the, the whole time that it's happening, there's something so kind of urgent about that situation that I'm just there and the entire energy of my being focused on the task at hand and engaged in it. And there's such a kind of purity of, of purpose and focus to that, that it's kind of uh, addicting. And I suppose like different people can have that in different arenas of life. But for me, it's uh, it's musical performance can also be easy to lose sight of that fact too when you're kind of caught up in all the the trappings you know i know obviously you've been been playing music for some time but it sounds like once the bands really hit things moves really quickly and you, you almost got 
I mean, you know, you 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 were there at the certain the, in, in the heady days of 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 the nineties. You know, this, this kind of this last throw for a lot of these major labels. Yeah, it's probably pretty easy to get swept up in that and lose sight of why you were doing what you were doing in the first place. Oh, totally. Yeah, and I I think from what from what I've observed, that is difficult for a lot of people to deal with there's been this kind of adjustment period of okay we we were in bands and then this thing happened where like major label interest kind of just like swept through like a tidal wave through you know punk music and alternative music back when we were calling it alternative um but like you know then those of us who who are really more at home at the indie level, the, the, that's really the kind of bands that we are. Uh, we, you know, we were thrust into this major label world with with a taste of commercial success that, um, for a lot of people, was unique to that time. And so, when that when the when the wave of when you're sort of on the other side of that wave, you know, then you you have to go about the business of like coming back to your your center of who you are and the, the reasons why you're doing what you're doing separate from the, the weird uh, flurry of insanity <laughs> that, that the, uh, that was the nineties. What did that sort of revelation look like for you? What, what was that process like? And at least from the outside looking in, it, it looks like you, you know, while the band took a break, it, you, you never really took, uh, at least not too extended a break from making music. Like, like you mean in the period between like 99 and 2005? What was the process of, of recalibrating like, you know, when you've had, when you've had that high and, and for better or for worse, you've kind of come down from it? Like, I, I, I guess I would have to start by, by pointing out that the the high that we're talking about uh, that happened in the '90s was was not something that I dealt with particularly well, and uh, it it resulted in like sort of a personal downward spiral that I experienced with substance abuse uh, and just kind of a, a, a kind of a personal darkness for me that, that resulted in uh, like a spiritual upheaval that, that, that happened for me in the, in the late nineties. Um, you know, when I, I became a person of faith and, uh, and, and a follower of, of Jesus and that, that sort of sent me on a path that I'd never been on before. Uh, but it, it provided a necessary anchor for me. But part of that whole journey was, was taking a few years off of being, in any band and then when i came back uh i wasn't quite ready to come back to the smoking pope so i did this other band called duval for a few years which was kind of like a a it was like a version of the smoking popes where i was able to write more specifically about issues of faith that i was dealing with um so then by the time the Smoking Popes actually got back together, it was like seven years after we had broken up. And although there was, there was enthusiasm about our reunion at the, at sort of the grassroots level of our fans, like p people were coming to the shows 
And there was a lot of excitement there. But we found coming back that the music industry had changed. And we, we kind of, you know, we're looking for a label. We've, we, we discovered that we definitely, you know, couldn't go back to a major label because this, this kind of separation had, had started to happen already where like the, the major labels were only, were only working with sort of like bigger, like, you know, 1% kind of artists. Whereas, you know, like in the nineties, the labels, major labels were just throwing money at, at anybody who, you know, sort of, the, uh, upon which they could tack the, t- the name alternative. But like that, that was not the case anymore in 2005. It had started to change, uh, I think, largely because of the internet and streaming services were starting to emerge. And so labels weren't able to sell quite as many units as they used to. And so they just, uh, they, they weren't as flush as, as they used to be. So, um, you know, it was, it was a bit of a process for us to like look for uh, a label that was going to work for us. And we, we wound up going back to, uh, to Asian man records just because Mike Park is, uh, a wonderful guy who is just lovely to work with and trustworthy and supportive and all that kind of stuff. It was just a different world, and it, it obviously wasn't going to be, you know, it was like we were going to be operating in a different sphere than we were um, in the 90s. And But that was, it was like another situation, almost like a self-imposed pandemic lockdown, where <laughs> we, had, we had been doing something for a while, and then stopped doing it for a period of time, and then coming back to it, there was a fresh sense of, uh, of appreciation for, like, we just we love to do this like for its own sake yeah i remember coming back and like we started to play shows and i just i enjoyed performing live after we got back together more than i ever had in the 90s i i know it's probably not a um particularly useful exercise to relitigate some of this stuff but i'm kind of going to ask you to a little bit um from the standpoint of the having that level of success that quickly that early on um, at the end of the day, do you think it was a blessing or a curse for yourself and the band? I don't know that. I mean, that's so speculative, <laughs> you know, cause I, I know, you know, being a person of faith, I believe that the things that have happened to me have been allowed to happen to me for a reason, <laughs> you know? So even if I, I look at things and I, I see that they were difficult. You know, I believe that those difficulties and struggles are something that, that, uh, that God uses to, to help make us stronger and to, to build us up and to teach us things. So it's, it's exactly what put you on the path that you're on now. But now I, I think mostly I look back on that and the thing that still remains from that era is the music that we made. So I look back on, you know, the, the real album that we made while we were on Capitol. I mean, that we, had, we had already made Born to Quit, and that got picked up by Capitol. But then while we were signed to Capitol, we made this album called Destination Failure. I am p- proud of that record. And I, I've, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that 
even though we were swept up in in the the weird uh pressures of now being involved in a, in a corporate music situation that we mostly through uh just being weirdly stubborn were able to resist uh the inf- a lot of the influences of of the the label and the A&R guys and uh you know I look back on that and I and I see that that album is not it doesn't have like corporate fingerprints all over it. It, it, it feels to me like a, a genuine artistic statement. And I think that's why people still like that album, you know, whereas like, I, I think there was the potential there that we could have made something that was more slick and more contrived. And we would look back on it and see it as nothing but an attempt to, uh, appeal to the masses and uh even if that had worked and we had had you know even more commercial success with that album um we wouldn't be as proud of it how did you avoid record label interference at that point i mean i I would assume that uh you know when when you're on a a label like that they they want to have their fingerprints all over the thing i think i mean if you if you recall in the 90s a lot of people were making a big deal out of the idea of selling out. So, um, like, do you remember all the all the crap that Jawbreaker got for signing to a major? Green Day got it. Green Day got it. All, all these bands got it because that was the initial uh, the initial kind of transition that punk was moving from underground to mainstream, and so there was a lot of people who felt like punk was kind of it had like a lot of ideological underpinnings that were being corrupted by the whole major label thing and and i think it was mostly paranoia about that that made us resist most of the promotional ideas that the label wanted us to do and 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 put us and made us have a kind of antagonistic relationship with like label representatives that were trying to speak into the the making of the album because we 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 had signed the contract but now we we felt like we were sort of caught in this culture war between our actual fan base who were punks and then this this world of like commercial success who were who were like I, I we knew there were a lot of potential um record buyers cd buyers out there but that they weren't they perhaps weren't uh deeply rooted fans who were going to stick with us because you don't when you're just you know you're just buying things because they're because that's what's getting played on the radio or because it's in a movie because it's in a movie or whatever so we felt like kind of we were we were kind of desperately trying to hold on to our independence and our identity as a punk band um, while reaping the benefits of having signed a major label record contract and having all that distribution. And so the result really was that the, the label became so frustrated with us that they uh, ended up, you know, not wanting to work with us anymore. And that sort of ended our relationship with them. So that, so I don't know, you could say that's a bad thing, but like, as I have pointed out, the upside of that is that we were able to make the album that we wanted to make 
with a major label budget. That's great. If I understand the timeline correctly, you had also already underwent or I guess started the, the, the process of undergoing your, your spiritual transformation on there. And that did, that did manifest itself into at least one song on the record. Yeah. Probably not what necessarily capital was hoping for in a, in a punk record at the time. Uh, that, that spiritual journey for me started while we were making that album. And, uh, that's what the song I know you love me was about because that was, it was one of those things where we made the album and we got the, the classic, uh, we don't hear a single. So we had to, you know, a couple months later had to go back in, uh, and record, uh, I think I know you love me is the only additional song that we recorded, but like during that intervening time, is when uh, you know I started to to have faith in Christ and started to write about that. And uh, I don't know. I think the song it just kind of came across as a love song. I, I had to have it explained to me what it was about, which I'm, I'm probably not uh, unique know. in that respect. Yeah, I, I didn't. I I wasn't quite to the point where I was going to mention Jesus by name in a song and try to put that on on, on an album. You know, that's what Duval was for after I got them going. But. You were intentionally making something that could be interpreted in a number of ways. I, I ended up having to take some time off. I took a few years off from being in a band just, just to focus exclusively on becoming grounded in my faith. And I'm glad I did that because um, I think I needed, I needed that. Otherwise, you know, it, I was kind of concerned that this kind of Christian thing that I was going through was just going to become uh, a potential uh, phase that I had gone through. If I, you know, it happened to me and then I just immediately tried to incorporate it into what I was doing artistically. And like, if that didn't work, uh, I would just sort of move on from it and, and go back to being the person that I was before. And I like desperately didn't want that because I definitely had come to a place where, you know, the things that I needed to figure out about being a person and, um, you know, addressing the kind of existential issues that had been plaguing me, those were of far greater importance than my musical career. You know, so I, I needed to just dive into just just for a few years, just go to church. And the only place that I was playing music was in church, and I didn't have any aspirations for for um, a musical career outside of that. And like that gave me a great sort of foundation to sort of become, as it were, a new person in Christ. Was it difficult to to reconcile all these things? You, you know, I you know I know oftentimes at least historically from the outside, I, I get the standpoint that sort of like secular music and, and rock and roll in particular and all the things that it represents can kind of be at odds with being a person of faith. Yeah, but I never felt like the the music itself that I was making was at odds with being a person of faith. I know that there are things about touring and, you know, hanging out in clubs and things that are, um, that tends to have debauchery written all over it. 
So um, there's a lot of opportunity to live in a profoundly ungodly way <laughs> when you're hanging out in, in rock clubs. So, um, so I just needed to sort of develop a, a firm sense of who I was now and what I was and was not going to be doing with myself, you know, on a daily basis. And so I, you know, and so I, when I, when I went through that period and came back to playing shows, I came with a confidence that I could, I could go, you know, into, you know, bars and clubs and places that I used to hang out in and I can go in there and I can not, uh, you know, not get ridiculously intoxicated and behave, uh, in, in ways that like didn't honor God and weren't consistent with, with my faith, you know? Um, so I, I do think that those two things are separate. Like, you know, rock music is not, is not inherently evil. Although I did like that first, the, the first church that I belonged to at that time, when I started playing rock music out again in the world, uh, they were against it. Because because they did feel that there was that it was inherently like a compromise for me to be doing that, and I, I disagreed with them, so I left that church and I found a different one. <laughs> I wasn't I, yeah, I wasn't particularly conflicted about it. <laughs> 